the rest of you, if you'll open your Bibles with me this morning to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5. We're going to continue our verse-by-verse exposition of the Sermon on the Mount that we've been looking at for the last few weeks. Um, Jesus, of course, starts the sermon with those most, those most famous of blessings, the Beatitudes, and uh, which he describes what it means to really have Christian character, what it means to be someone who follows God. He goes on from there to talk about the application of that character as he tells us that we are the salt of the earth and we are the light of the world. I mean, after all, what good does it do to have the character of Christ if it's not changing the world around us and glorifying God? That's the whole purpose, why that character is so important. And so he tells us that, that we are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And then he goes on in this section that we began to look at last week in verses 17 through 20 to speak to us about the significance of the law, in particular how it relates to him. You see, Jesus understood the hearts of the people that he was preaching to and, the people that, and that people knew that he was different than the religious leaders. He had impacted the world around him in a way that other people hadn't. Everybody else relied on the authority of other authorities. And that's what they preached from and that's what they taught from. But Jesus taught on his own authority. Jesus taught with power. And, and of course, his, his teaching also was accompanied by miracles and wonders and signs. And people knew that he was different. And he also understood that they were questioning what his intentions were, what his desire was, especially when it came to God's law. You see, he knew that he had already had some confrontations with the Pharisees and and with the other religious leaders, and he knew that they would question him about things, and this would go on throughout his ministry, that they would question Jesus about something he did as concerning some form of tradition that they had come up with. And so the people were looking at Jesus, and they're like, is he giving us a a new law? Is he overturning what, what God has done in the past? Is he, is he, you know, what's going on here? And so Jesus, in trying to help them understand the significance and the importance of God's law to them, begins to teach them of the law, to speak of its purpose, its permanence, its priority, and practice. And we began to look last week at the purpose for which the law is given, and we'll get to that in a moment. But I want to ask you to stand with me this morning in reverence to the reading of God's Word. As we read from Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20, I want to keep it all in context as we continue to look at this important text. Jesus is speaking in verse 17. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Gracious Father, as we come to your word, open our hearts and our minds to receive it with all humility and to apply it to our lives. Guard my heart and my mouth as I speak your word this morning. 
Fill me with your spirit, Lord, to speak only those things which are honoring and truthful. And Lord, may all we do bring glory to the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Be seated. So as I said, in the first part of this text, Jesus, Jesus addresses the law. He comes to speak of the purpose of the law, saying, I haven't come to abolish the law. The law has a purpose. He says, I haven't come to abolish, but to fulfill the law. And in fulfilling the law, he actually reveals the purpose of the law, which is to point us to him. The law, of course, reveals to us God's perfect standard. And Jesus, as the fulfillment, or we could say the satisfaction of the law, basically reveals that he himself had come to fulfill all that God had taught previously, and that he was coming to basically to um, satisfy God's word. The things prophesied concerning the Messiah, the things uh, spoken to establish righteousness, all of these things Christ fulfilled. And so the law's purpose ultimately then is to make us aware of our insufficiency and of Christ's sufficiency. And so the purpose of the law is to point us to himself. And so he goes on from speaking about the purpose of the law to what we're going to begin looking at this morning, and, and hopefully we're going to finish up this, this morning, but we're going to look at the, the first the permanence of the law, and then also we're going to be looking at the priority and the practice of the law. But look with me again at verse 18, if you will. Verse 18, Jesus says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. So Jesus is telling us that the law of God is important, that there's not one part of it that's not going to be significant until when? Until, until the end of time, right? He says the end of time is the time when, when all of these things will be accomplished. And even then, we know that God's word endures forever, right? So, so but this... You know, to some, to some Christians, this tends to be a little bit confusing because Jesus obviously is telling us of the importance of the law for all time. It's permanent. It, it doesn't go away. It's not abrogated. It's not set aside. He says all of these things are significant to us. And yet when we read later on in the, in the ministries of the apostles, you read things the apostle Paul wrote, and it seems to contradict what Jesus says. Just for example, in Galatians 2.16, the apostle Paul writes, Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. Now that seems very, that seems almost contrary to what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying the law is important. Paul seems to be saying the law is not important because what's important is salvation by grace through faith, right? I mean, we hear that. We know that. And that's true. The law doesn't justify us. What we have to understand is, of course, when we look at God's word, God's word never contradicts itself. Okay? It's not contradictory. In fact, it's complementary. Because Paul and Jesus are talking about two entirely different things. Paul, when he's speaking there in the Galatians passage, he's talking about the means of salvation. 
He's assuring us that we are not good enough on our own. We can never be good enough on our own to attain to the righteousness which makes us acceptable to God and allows us to enter into heaven. It is only by faith in the name of Jesus Christ through the work that he accomplished on Calvary's cross and in the power of the resurrection can we be saved. The law cannot save. It can only condemn. That is Paul's entire point. He's not telling us that the law isn't important. In fact, you read some other things that Paul wrote, and he tells you, he says, if it were not for the law, I would not have known sin. Because sin, by reading the law, sin became alive in me, and, and, and I became condemned by it. And, so, and this is really more of the point that Jesus is making in what he's saying. He's talking about the importance of the law, not for salvation. The issue in what Jesus is talking about in the Sermon on the Mount is not an issue of salvation. It's, in, it's more an issue... Um, regarding, excuse me, it's an issue regarding the importance and the application of the law for those who are already saved. By and large, the message in this portion of the Sermon on the Mount is to people who believe. This is a message for believers. That becomes clear even as we're looking down in, in, uh, later on in verse 19 when he talks about the people annulling the commandments and the people teaching them. And both of them he refers to as those who are in the kingdom. Some are called least in the kingdom of heaven and some are called great in the kingdom of heaven, but both are believers who are in the kingdom. And so Jesus is talking about people who are already saved. And so what we need to recognize is that while there are many people in the world that are so enamored with the grace of God and in love with the grace of God because it does set us free from the condemnation of the law and we ought to be in awe of God's grace but they take it to the extreme to which they they think because grace has freed me from the power of the law that the law has no application for my life and that is not what the Bible teaches and that is not what Jesus is saying here he's telling us that the law is still important even after you're saved there's still things that need to be learned from the law. There's still applications that need to be made from the law. So Jesus is telling us not how to be saved, but speaking of the enduring benefit of the law. Because, as we said before, God's word lasts forever. Isaiah 40, verse 8, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. It is an unending word. It never ceases to have application. It never ceases to have purpose. It never ceases to have power. Now, last time when we were talking about the ways in which Jesus fulfilled the law, and we talked about some things that in the law that, that we, we tend not to follow, right? I mean, we're not, institute, we're not reinstituting the sacrificial system, right? We're not offering bulls and goats and shedding blood for the, for the remission of sins. Why? Because Jesus already took care of that. It's all done. Does that mean that those laws that are written in the Old Testament aren't important? No, it doesn't mean that at all because it reveals to us the importance of the shedding of blood for the forgiveness of sins. We look back to, and it reminds us of God's holiness and God's demands. That doesn't mean that we're still obligated to make those sacrifices because Christ made the once for all sacrifice. So we don't have to do that anymore. The ceremonial law, all of those things which determine cleanliness and uncleanliness, we are cleansed in Christ. We don't have to worry about those aspects of the law. And then we talk about the judicial law, those things that God gave to the Jews that set them apart from the world around them. Well, when the Jews rejected God and the gospel went forth to the Gentiles, which is most of us, probably all of us, when the gospel went forth to the world, 
God didn't require people to become Jewish in order to be saved. So those things, while they're important to recognize the nation of the Jews as a people and God's chosen people, and it helps us to understand God's purposes and plans, they aren't, they aren't imposed on Gentile believers because we're not required to become Jewish in order to be Christians. And then, of course, Jesus also fulfilled the moral law, right? The moral law is those things, basically, most of which we find in the Ten Commandments, those things which tell us how to honor God and how to love our neighbor, right? Those are the things that, that Jesus spoke of and said were really of, of most importance. Of course, later on in Matthew 22, Jesus was asked the great, what's the greatest commandment, and he answers in verses 37 through 40, he said, and he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And so Jesus really upholding the moral law and saying these are the things on which really all of God's word is pointing us to. These are the things which we're to obey. These are the things which God's word tells us are binding on us as God's children. That we need to love God with everything that we are. And we need to love others even as we love ourselves. Those things are still important. They will never cease to be important. Until, until right, the end of time, right? Because what, what point will there be in trying to apply God's law when God has brought all things to a culmination and the fullness of the gospel is fulfilled, when salvation has its fullest effect, when we have resurrected bodies, we're made in perfection, we're dwelling in the glory of God, we're going to love Him. We're going to see Him in His presence. We can't help but to love Him. Those of us whose hearts have been changed by Him and who have been regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit, we will love God in all that He is. And we will love others as ourselves because in our perfected bodies, we will not succumb to the temptations of this world for sin will be no more and neither will the power of sin be in effect to lead us astray. So we won't need the law to remind us anymore of what to do. But yet, God's law will still stand as a reminder of what Christ has done for us. Because God's word will endure. Right now it's instructive, but then it will be merely a record of what has happened. And so Jesus tells us, in fact, he gives us two stipulations there in verse 18 of kind of when the law will have a different purpose, when, it, when it's going to work in a different way. He says, truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away. That's the end of time. That's the fulfillment of God's promises to us. When heaven and earth pass away. He says, until that time, not one, what does it say here? Not the smallest letter. In Greek, that's an iota. Right? You ever heard someone say, not one iota, right? That's a very small thing. It's the smallest letter in the Greek alphabet. But actually, what Jesus is referring to, he's actually referring to the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet, the yod. And, uh, and if you have a King James Version, it probably says, not one jot or tittle. And I've got a, a, a picture up here. That, that first letter, okay, in Hebrew, you read from right to left instead of left to right. That first letter on the far, this is the name of God in Hebrew. The first letter on the right, that's a yod. That's the smallest letter in the Greek alphabet. Okay? And then you, and you see it says jot, tittle, 
little horn on the bob in the middle there, which is the same as on the yod. Same little thing. In some of the Hebrew letters, that little horn is the only thing that differentiates one letter from another in some places. But Jesus' point in all of that is to tell us not the smallest stroke of the things that have been written for God's people by the Holy Spirit's um, power is going to pass away. It's all going to continue on, even until the end of time. When there's no more need for direction to live holy as a representative of Christ in the world, for all who have been redeemed will be in his presence and will live in harmony with him for all eternity. The point being, God's law is forever. And it serves its purpose until that time. And and what does he say? He says, so not the smallest stroke or, or... Smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until what? Until all is accomplished. Again, you could refer this. This is just emphasizing this whole end of time thing. But there's something, I think, a little bit more here. It's it's a second reference to the end of time, but more specifically, the fulfillment of all that God's word reveals. See, a lot of times we tend to think of God's word, or God's law, rather, as just a bunch of do's and don'ts, right? We think, well, God tells us we should do this and we shouldn't do that. That's God's law. Those are the things that, that... When we talk about God's law, that's what it is. But really, when we talk about God's law, we're talking about all of God's revealed word. Because all of God's revealed word is law. Because it is all unchanging, it is all binding, and it it will all be fulfilled. You see, God's law doesn't just tell us the things we should do and the things we shouldn't do. It also tells us what God is going to do. It tells us what he has done in the past and what he's going to do in the future. And so he says there's some things that, are, that have yet to be accomplished, and it's going to be accomplished at the end of time, and this is the proof that they're going to come to pass is the things that have been written in his word, which is why it's so important for us to recognize the priority that God is, gives us for his word or that we should have for his word. And that's why Jesus says in verse 19, he speaks of the priority of the law. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments... And teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And so you see, Jesus divides up two groups of believers here. Those who understand the significance of the law and those who don't. We talked about it before. Those those who misunderstand and make little of God's commands and those who faithfully obey. And you know what's interesting about both of these groups of people? They both impact others through discipleship. Because in both groups, he tells us there, he says, whoever annuls one of the least of the commandments and teaches others to do the same. And then whoever keeps and teaches, teaches them. See, discipleship is, is inseparable from the Christian life. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, your life is meant to impact others. Others will learn from your example. If you name the name of Christ, people will look to you and will look at your example and you will have an impact. So it's important how we view and how we deal with God's word. Is it a priority for you? 
Are you seeking to know it and to obey it and to follow it? For those that tend to ignore part of God's law, things that, that speak of God's morality and, and God's truth, and, and they, they just kind of want to set it aside because they feel like it inhibits their Christian freedom. And yet, Jesus clearly teaching us the significance of honoring his law in all that we do. Now, Jesus doesn't tell us for those that, that are mistaken in their understanding of in implications of the law. He doesn't tell us that they're not saved. As I said before, because he, he says there, he says, they're, they're simply, when it comes to the time of evaluation, they're called least in the kingdom of heaven. Well, who's going to call them least? If they're in the kingdom, who's doing the evaluation? God is. This isn't the evaluation of other people. This is God's evaluation. And why would they be called least? Because by diminishing the word of God, they've actually diminished the name of God. You cannot separate God from his word. His word is the revelation of himself, of his purposes, of his truth, and of his character. To diminish his word is to diminish God. So it's no wonder there's such little respect for those who would set aside his commands for the sake of their own pleasure and purpose and who would encourage others to do the same. But in contrast to that, Jesus says that there are those who do and teach others to do or to obey the law. He says, and they are called great in the kingdom of heaven. See, God desires in our salvation that we grow in holiness. That we grow in our likeness to Christ. As long as we're insisting on our personal right and freedom against the obedience of God's word, we are walking in disobedience. The encouragement here is obvious. We should consistently evaluate God's word and seek to make application where it can be made, even if it requires to us to make sacrifices in order to be obedient. Sacrifices of comfort, sacrifices of pleasure, sacrifices of things, not sacrifices in the sense of bulls and goats and those types of things, but setting aside the luxuries in order to honor God, those kinds of sacrifices. Sometimes those are necessary to be obedient to the word of God. And it's not too much for him to ask us to give up anything because he gave everything. He gave all of himself for us. Can we not give up some of our personal freedom and personal comfort in order to honor him and to serve him? I think we would all long, we all long to hear those words when we enter through the gates of heaven, well done and good and faithful servant. And I think if you don't long to hear those words, there's something wrong in your heart because we ought, as Christians, we want to be pleasing to our Heavenly Father so that when we see Him and when He sees us, that He is pleased to welcome us into the kingdom. I would hate to stand in His presence and to be ashamed because I diminished His word or diminished His name in this life. 
the word of God must be a priority for us. We need to know what God's word says, and we need to make application of it where we are able. And then finally, as we come to verse 20, Jesus says something of the practice of the law. This heading may seem a little misleading, but I think it was probably the way that it was understood by Jesus' audience. In fact, I think they were probably very confused at this point. As Jesus is talking about the implications and the importance and the significance of the law, and then he comes to this in verse 20, and he says, And for I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. At this point, I, I think his audience is completely confused, as some of you may be. How in the world can our righteousness exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees? To Jesus' audience, these were the righteous people in the community. These were the people that, that upheld God's word. They were the ones that meticulously followed all of these traditions in order to demonstrate their holiness and their righteousness. These were the ones who, who prayed and fasted and tithed and did all of their works before people so people would know that they were righteous and that they were holy people. And Jesus says, it's not enough. See, maybe we shouldn't call this the practice of the law so much as the principle of the law because the principle of the law is the reality that our righteousness is not enough. The principle of the law tells us of God's perfection, of his standards, of his holiness. Jesus' audience is thinking if, man, if the Scribes and the Pharisees aren't good enough for heaven. Who, who can be? So many times in our, own, in our own culture and in the world in which we live, we, we, we talk to people and we're around people. And, and, and you see this a lot of times, especially when it comes to dealing with, with death and you, and you go to funerals and, and, and people are talking about how good of a person that, that so-and-so was. And that's not wrong. We, we ought to talk about the goodness of of how they are, but we should never equate their goodness with their entry into heaven because it's not about how good they were. It's always about how good Christ was. He's the standard. But again, this, this statement would have, again, it would have it confused his people, and, and Jesus was pretty good at this. He was pretty good at confusing people because he wanted to kind of shock them out of their traditional way of thinking and to help them Come back to the word of God and evaluate it for what it says. And, and he does this throughout his ministry. In fact, I want to ask you to turn over to Matthew 19 with me this morning. If you turn over to Matthew 19, because there's, an, there's a similar engagement here in which Jesus says something to the people which really kind of floors them in regards to salvation. And in Matthew 19, verse 23, <clears throat> excuse me. He challenges, well, here in our verse, he challenges the righteousness of the Pharisees. In Matthew 19, beginning in verse 23, he challenges the blessing of the wealthy. It says there, beginning in verse 23, and Jesus said to his disciples, Truly, I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, I want to stop there for just a second because to Jesus' audience, there was, if there was anybody that was getting into heaven, it was the scribes, the Pharisees, and the rich people. 
They weren't always the same people, but a lot of times they were. But rich people, they just thought, man, if, if you had the blessing of God, if you had material wealth and you had God's blessing, and that just proved that you were going to go to heaven. But look at what Jesus says. He says, again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And now notice the response of the disciples. When the disciples heard this, they were astonished and said, then who can be saved? And you got to think this is the same thing that the people were thinking when Jesus is talking about, if your righteousness doesn't exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you can't get into heaven. And they've got to be thinking, who then can be saved? And Jesus gives us the answer in verse 26. He says, And looking at them, Jesus said to them, With people, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. You see, the principle of the law points us to the perfection of God, to his standard, to his holiness. And that's the point that Jesus is making. The revolve, excuse me, the law reveals God's standards. Just a little later in the Sermon on the Mount, back in chapter 5 and verse 48, we find Jesus even speaking more family. He tells us simply, he says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's his standard. That's why when he says, if your righteousness doesn't exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you can't get into heaven. Why? Because God's standard is perfection. And what is the reality? We have fallen short of God's standard. You know, but that's what the law does right? The law points out where we've fallen short. You think about our own criminal justice system, and you think about the purpose of the law. We have a law against robbing people, right? Well, that law against robbing people isn't what keeps you from going to jail. It's what puts you in jail if you've broken the law, right? I mean, that's why the law is there. The law is there to convict. The law is there to establish punishment. The law is there to demonstrate when you've done something wrong. If you haven't done anything wrong, that law doesn't, it has no effect on you, right? It tells you you probably shouldn't do that or there will be consequences. But it doesn't do anything for you in a, in a positive way, right? It doesn't, there's no benefit to you other than, I mean, if you're just staying out of jail, right? There's no benefit other than that of, of not breaking the law. But the thing is, is with God's law, we've all fallen short. And because of that, God sent his son into the world. And the good news of the gospel is the reality that although we've fallen short, Christ has satisfied God's wrath against sin for all who believe in his name. That we're made acceptable to our heavenly father through him. Unfortunately, many have presumed on that grace and claimed the application of salvation with no real change of heart, no turning from sin, and no submission to Jesus as Lord. You cannot claim the benefit of Christ without having faith in Christ. And faith is a gift granted by God through the power of the Holy Spirit in which we are convinced of our guilt, broken over our offenses, and whereby we seek forgiveness and experience repentance and are granted faith by God. The law cannot save us, but that doesn't lessen its significance or importance to us as followers of Christ. We need God's law. And by 
Again, by that I mean we need all of God's word. And all of his word is law. We need it as the revelation of salvation. We need it as a guide for holy living. But also for so much more. As God's law, it reveals to us the unchangeableness of his character. It teaches us of his holiness, his justice, his mercy, and his grace. It explains to us our separation from him and reveals to us his plans for our redemption and restoration. The law of God chronicles the unfolding of his plan and gives us the truth of sin and salvation. Not something that's based on the ever-changing whims of people's feelings but on the sure promise of his eternal nature. His word is full of purpose as it points us to Christ, guides us in life, and reveals God's plans for the future. It is as permanent as God himself and will endure throughout time and beyond. This is a revelation of truth now and a record of truth later. It must be a priority for all of us that we might know and follow him who gave everything for us, we must learn it and teach it to others that we might be greeted in eternity with those long-awaited words, well done, good and faithful servant. And so we must practice the law, not to attain righteousness, but to grow in righteousness. We were created in God's image. We were marred by the fall into sin. And we are renewed by the blood of Christ to be like him. The principle of the law is God's holiness. And he has called us to be holy as he is holy. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, holy and just and true, we bow before you this morning in recognition of our many failures when it comes to the standard of your law. We recognize, Lord, this morning that your law is permanent, that it is always before us, and that it has purpose in so many various aspects of life. We also recognize, Lord, that it needs to be more of a priority for us. There's a whole lot of things in this world, Lord, that seek our attention and seek to distract us from following you as we ought to. And we recognize this morning, Lord, that sometimes we're guilty of following things and giving other things priority over you. Lord, we recognize that is the sin of idolatry. Seek your forgiveness this morning for the idols which we set up in our hearts. So many times, Lord, we make excuses for our actions. We try to explain away our apathy towards the things relating to your word and to your service because it makes us feel better. But Lord, we may be able to feel, fool ourselves, but we cannot fool you. You know our every thought. You know every word before it's on our tongue. Lord, have your way in our hearts this morning. Teach us, Lord, to give your word priority in our life. Teach us, Father, of its purpose so that we might follow it as we're conformed into the image of Christ. Strengthen us to be intentional in our actions as disciple-makers of Jesus Christ and continue to grow us in our knowledge 
and application of your word so that you may be glorified in us. And we ask it in the most perfect and precious name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Jim's going to lead us with some music. I'll ask you to stand with me. The altar's open if you'd like to come forward and pray. I'll be down front to pray with you if the Lord's speaking to your heart this morning. However the Lord may be guiding you, I just ask you just to respond to Him. You can pray where you're at. You can pray at the front. You can pray with me. Just listen to the convicting power of the Lord Jesus and respond to Him this morning. Father, we just, we give ourselves to you. Father, everything that we have is yours. Not just material things, but our very soul. Lord, help us to honor you with our lives. To uphold your word for the glory of your name. Strengthen us to be bold in our faith. To be better witnesses for the gospel of Christ. And to magnify the name of Jesus in everything that we do. It's in his name we pray. 
And all of God's children said, Amen. Don't forget, muffins for missions for sale out in the...